melted by uh, the time we got to the village. And within the hour, that cold water was just lukewarm at best. It, it just wasn't good at all. And so by the time we, we left the village, we were all just dying of thirst and wanting just, just the smallest drink of water you know, for, for relief. And um, I can't imagine being stranded in the wilderness without a ready access to, to water. And that's, that's the situation she finds herself in. In fact, she, she is ready to lay down in the hot sun and die. Uh, and, it's, and the story is almost as if there's one bush, right? Or in one area of bushes. And, and she puts him there in the shade. And she goes out in the middle of the desert, right? I don't know if that's the case or not, but it almost reads, it almost reads that way. Uh, that she, she goes off. Um, and, and particularly, I suspect you mothers are, can, can, can really uh, appreciate this scene, right? She, she's gotten to a point of, of desperation and certain death. And the thought of her losing her baby boy is just unfathomable. And so she, she puts him in the safest place that she can find. She's a good mom. And so she goes off to die. Right? Her, her last act, she believes, is what little she has to give her son shade in the wilderness. She does. Right? She, she's a mother just, just like any other uh, mother. And um, this area of, of the wilderness, it's Beersheba, um, receives only about 6 to 12 inches of rain a year. Uh, I think we call that April here, you know. Um, week two of April, but um, it's very much a, a dry climate here. Um, notice verse 16, uh, it says, she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, the distance of the bow shot, for he said, let me not look on the death of a child as she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. Now, the ESV suggests that it is Hagar who is weeping. Um, does, is that how y'all's read? It reads as if it's Hagar. The Septuagint, um, sometimes in your Bibles you'll see capital L, capital X, capital X, uh, Roman numeral 70. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Sept Septuagint means 70 in Greek. Um, it implies... And, of course, Septuagint is an early translation, right? It predates Jesus. It's the Bible Jesus and Paul quoted from and used in the New Testament. So it's a very important translation. Um, and it, it gives us an early rendering of, of the Old Testament. Um, it suggests that Ishmael is the one weeping. It, it gives a masculine pronoun to, to weep. Right? Now, I, I don't have any great insight to this, but, but I do think it's fair to say there's a good chance that both uh, both are, are here. I don't know if the Hebrew is ambiguous on this or not, because I'm, I'm not that gifted with Hebrew. Um, but nevertheless, you, you have just a terrible situation. She, she lifts... 17 agrees with that. 17 with, with him? Yeah. yeah, God heard the voice of the boy. Yeah. Um, uh, from everything I've read, that, that's what they think the LXX is trying to show. Um, so, so, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's... it's it's a bad situation, you know, regardless. I, 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 can't, I can't imagine um, being in this, this sort of situation. However, notice uh, there in verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy. Now, now if you've been tracking with us, that language, you, you should know exactly what's being said there, right? Uh, to hear or to listen is the Hebrew word shema. And it is the, the main root word in Ishmael. 
And, and, and Ishmael means God hears. You, you remember that Hagar flees. And, and while she's trying to get back to Egypt, uh, we, we are told that God hears her. Right? It says in Genesis 16, 11, angel Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Uh, uh, the L-E-L is God. So Ishma, uh, Shema, right, is God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That word Shema means more than uh, sound going into the ear. It, 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 it implies listening, which is, which is interpretation and responding, right? So, so uh, the Shema, the Hebrew Shema is hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You could translate that as listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? There's something that has to be done because of what it is that you have heard and, and heeded. Um, so, so you see here, uh, God hears is mentioned twice. And they remember in, in chapter 21, Ishmael's not mentioned by name. And, and I think that's connected to how he's treated as a slave boy. Right? He, he is treated as lower class, which is a denial of the image of God. And so he's called the boy or the child or something like that. Um, but God heard the voice of the boy weeping or whatever it, it, it might be. Um, and that's not surprising. God hears. And who is it that he's hearing? He's hearing the child who is not the, son, who is not the promised son. He's hearing him, the, the son of a slave woman, the abandoned one, the one who is alone, the one who is, who is about ready to die under the shade of the bushes. I mean, don't, don't pass over that significance there. Uh, don't take it for granted. God hears him uh, as, he, as he cries. Uh, and notice who, who is speaking here. It is the angel of God. Uh, I take this to be uh, the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in Genesis 16. Right? And I believe the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Now, we've, back in Genesis 16, we spent some time on that and why I believe that. Uh, to give you a, a cliff note, um, among other things, the angel of the Lord uh, receives worship from God uh, in, in several places, uh, which none of the angels would have done that. Uh, so I think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. And notice here that it is the angel of God uh, called to Hagar from heaven. Now, one of the things we do as 21st century Americans is whenever we see the word heaven, we always think about the abode of God. Uh, that's, that's more of an American phenomenon. That is, that is not always the way the ancients, particularly in the Bible, sees it. Uh, you, you've probably heard before that the word heaven is used in three, if we can say, three levels of heaven. There's the sky, uh, where the birds fly. There's where the stars are. Um, and then there's the, the abode of God. Um, if you ever read C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, um, he, he, he has this whole section when Ransom goes into space. He goes to Mars in the first one, I believe, unless it's Venus. I think it's Mars. And, and when he's on this rocket ship, right, in space, he has this beautiful scene. It's just a few paragraphs. And I remember the one line is, he, he says, and now Ransom realized why the ancients called it the heavens. I just love that. I love that. I and mean, only C.S. Lewis can, can pull something like that off. Uh, but he's, he's exactly right. We don't call it the heavens because, uh, well, we live in the city. We, we never look up anymore. We're too busy navel-gazing. Uh, but in, in the ancient world, uh, they, 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 they very much looked up to, to the heavens. But what is interesting is um, I'm not sure, and I'll give you a few examples. I'm not sure that up to this point we've gotten a clear reference to the third heaven. Okay? Um, for example, if, if you go to Genesis 1-1, uh, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, he's not saying uh, God was in infinite nothingness and then he thought, I should create myself a home, right? No, no, it's, it's, he's creating the, the earth and the sky. That's what Genesis 1-1 means because what follows in the creation account is the creation of the earth and sky, right? And so we see that throughout uh, much of it. There are two instances where at maybe we can say it's a reference to the third heaven before this point. And I'll let you decide uh, what they are, uh, if, if they're describing third heaven or not. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. Now, it sounds very much like Genesis 1. But he's also the possessor of heaven. So, you know, I don't know. This, this is the best I can do in terms of a third heaven reference. Three verses later, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to the Lord God, most high. That language is interesting possessor of heaven and earth. Well, you can see what happens when you go from one PowerPoint to, to another. Um, so it's, it's the same language here. Um, but that, that's the only time so far in Genesis that, that we, could, we can point to maybe the third heavens is, is in reference here. Um, but here it's clearly the angel of the Lord uh, called to her from heaven, from heaven. So clearly, the, the ancient Jews believed in the abode of, of God as being outside of the created universe. So he's not calling from the sky. He's calling, I believe, from, from heaven. By the way, this, this will uh, have a parallel later in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord, there he is again, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here, here I am. Very, very similar parallel. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Here, it doesn't surprise us to see God talking to Abraham. By the way, this is right before he sacrifices Isaac. So it doesn't surprise us to see God speaking to Abraham from heaven. But you'll notice here, God first speaks to Hagar and Ishmael from heaven. <coughs> Just interesting to me. Uh, that, that, is, that is the case. And of course, it's not unusual for God to speak to slaves because he's going to do it in Exodus. So this is a special act of intervention, once again, from, from God. And that's, that's what we are supposed to see here. And what does he say to Ishmael and Hagar? Um, he says, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard, Ishmael, God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. It's interesting. God knows exactly where he is. Hagar hides him from the sun, but can't hide him from the angel of God. I mean, it's just, just a beautiful, beautiful image that we have here. Um, that God always knows where we are and what it is that we're going through. But you see there, the, the command is to, to not to fear. And so far in Genesis, a lot of people are afraid. A lot of them are afraid. The first ones, Adam and Eve, right? Uh, we, we saw that we were naked and we were afraid, right? And that's why they hide from each other. And they try to cover up their shame. We'll have more to say about it uh, this upcoming Sunday evening and a little bit Sunday morning. But um, they, they're afraid. But it isn't just them. Uh, Lot and his daughters are really afraid. Um, and so, so they end up fleeing, not just Song of Gomorrah, but uh, Zoar. And then they go on the mountains. And then the daughters get afraid that they're not going to have any kids. And so they make their decisions. Abimelech, we saw in chapter 20. We'll revisit him, Lord willing, next Wednesday. Uh, but he's, he's afraid of whenever he finds out that Abraham, you know, God is on his side. But only too far, two, two times so far, does God tell someone not to fear. Everyone else, they have good reason to fear. Uh, the first in Genesis 15, 
the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Remember, this, this is where uh, I believe God puts Abraham to, to sleep and uh, cuts a covenant with him. And the other time is here. So again, uh, everyone's afraid so far in, in Genesis. But so far, only two people, God says, don't be afraid. Abraham, which doesn't surprise us, the other is Hagar and Ishmael. It's amazing, isn't it? They're, they're, they're not Jews, they're Gentiles. Yeah, God's grace extends even to them. Right, this should give us some, some historical backdrop to understand the New Testament that, that is very much uh, geared towards Jew and Gentile because that's the pattern we see throughout the Bible. Um, he has heard the voice of the boy outside of Ishmael possibly crying. In the narrative, Ishmael has not spoken a single word in this narrative. Yet God hears him. I, I just think that's significant. That was something that stuck out to me. Um, he hears his tears, which, which reminds you of Romans 8, doesn't it? Even when we don't know what to pray, uh, he, he takes our groanings. Uh, did I ever tell you the time that that verse made sense to me? Um, I was at a church one time, and... Um, someone interpreted that verse to, to mean uh, praying in tongues. And that's not my position, and, and we can have a friendly conversation about that, but it's not, not my position. But I remember I had, I had, a, had a really bad day one time, and uh, uh, I was driving down the road by myself, um, and I was, you know, it was one of those days you're ready to quit everything, you know, um, go find a rock somewhere and just go to sleep, which Johnny Cash actually did one time. Uh, he didn't go to commit suicide, but he did go to die. He climbed into a cave, and he laid down, and he hoped he never woke up again. I mean, that, that's, that's a low spot in life. So it was one of those days. You're ready just to sleep for six months and, and you know. Well, I remember I had to, had to drive. It was about a 15-minute drive before I got home, and I thought, I'm just going to let God know everything that's going on, how angry I am and how justified I am in my anger. You, you've had these prayers, right? And I remember I, I started to pray out loud, and nothing came out. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those moments. It's just, just nothing came out. And so uh, Romans 8 made sense to me. It's not that I, I didn't understand experientially my frustrations and, and my confusion. And, and you know, we, we were going to have to make some, some big decisions as a family and a couple. And, and uh, so I eventually ended up praying, you know, my theology. You know, God, I, I believe you are this and this and this and this and this. But it was, it was like, like a weird five minutes of just not having a clue as to where to even begin. And Romans 8 is a place of real comfort that, that God knew exactly what it is I was trying to say, even though English didn't seem adequate. Same thing here. God hears one who in the narrative isn't speaking, but God hears him. And, and, and the only voice that we can even attach to would be tears. Where's good news in that, isn't it? I did a funeral yesterday. You think there's good news in that? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Well, notice verse 18. We, we get this promise reaffirmed. Up, lift up the boy. Remember, uh, repetition in the Old Testament is for emphasis. Lift him up. Hold him fast with your hand. I will make him into a great nation. Now, this, this was promised before. Um, and, uh, but you'll notice what is missing. It's a covenantal promise, but it's lacking the promise of a Messiah. Now, Isaac is the promised son. But God secures the future of Ishmael. And that's an act of grace. And so he, he, he assures Hagar, don't worry about it. I've got everything under control. Pick him up. Keep walking. Don't worry about it. 
Yeah. So that promise is there. And that's interesting, isn't it? That the promise is the mechanism by which Hagar goes again. Without the promise, she's, she, she's done. They're both done. It's the promise of God that gets her back up again. That has not changed one iota today, right? I mean, why is it that Christians are so panicked about everything they see on the news right now? If there is a promise, you can keep going. And there is a promise. You know, it's all going to work out in the end. You and I may be dead in the process, right? But it will work out in the end. Uh, God's got everything taken uh, under control. So anything we can say about the church or about the family or about culture or about our lives, whatever it is, God is well aware uh, of what it is that he is doing. So there's no mention of land or Messiah, but, but he is promised that he will be uh, a great nation. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy drink. This, this is an important verse. Most scholars believe that God did not create a well with water in it. Okay, I, I, I think this is really insightful because there's no, there's no indication that God said, okay, let there be water in the middle of the wilderness for Hagar, and then it disappears, right? Because that's not really what he did in, in the wilderness experience for Israel, isn't it? There was a rock, and out of the rock came, came water, yes, but, 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 but God didn't just say, oh, by the way, water, right? It's not Minecraft, okay? You just, just don't put it there. Um, but rather, God shows her water, which means she's come to the point of desperation and despair, and everything she needs is right there, but her despair blinds her from it. And so she needs God to open her eyes to see it. There's this beautiful scene in um, Pilgrim's Progress. I've, I've mentioned it before. It's probably my favorite scene in, in the whole, whole story. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you, it's, it's, you, if you want to get to a good spot in heaven, you have to read it. It's, it's in the Bible somewhere. And uh, in it, uh, I think it's Christian and hopeful. I think, I think it's his, his companion. They're in Giant Despair's dungeon, right? And, and Giant Despair comes every day. He's got them locked up, and he, he abuses them. He just beats them to, to almost to, to, to a literal corpse. And, and, and he keeps saying, the only way to get out of here is if you kill yourself. And he comes back every day, beats them up again, says, if you want to get out of here, you, you got to kill yourself. And I think he leaves like a dagger or something for them. Right? And, and, and as the story goes on, uh, Christian and hopeful, they, they, they start to give in. You know, they, they think, well, we'll never get out of here. This is, this is what's going to be the rest of our life. We might as well you know, be set free from this. And remember, John Bunyan's writing the story from prison. Um, he dreamed a dream in prison as, as the story begins. But, um, and then at one point, first time I read this, I hated this part, but I love it now. Um, you know, dry despair is left, and they're ready to, to just finally give up. And then Christian feels something in his pocket. And he realizes this whole time he had a key called promise. On him was a key that would set them free from giant despair's dungeon. And that's how they escaped. Right? He had it on him the whole time. If only he would believe in the promise. Same thing here. There's water right there for Hagar. They can fill up their, their skin there. But she can't see it because despair blinds us from any hope or joy or contentment or peace or love or grace or salvation. That's the problem with despair. Uh, but, but here, God makes a promise. Uh, he will be a great nation. And then he opens her eyes. And there she sees um, the well. 
Now, that language of opening eyes is interesting, isn't it? If you if, Remember that, that Genesis isn't just a collection of stories. It's, it's one story, and it's part of a broader meta-narrative of, of the Bible. It sounds like this. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, remember, the, the, the tree of knowledge isn't that forever and ever you, you, you were to, to avoid this, but rather, on God's timing, wisdom and knowledge would be unveiled for Adam and Eve. So when they eat of the fruit, they are taking that process for themselves. And so they're, giving, they're taking something rather than being given something from, from God. Okay? And so, so when they eat of it, their eyes are opened, knowing good and evil. The problem is, is they, they no longer choose good. They choose the evil. We know that because of shame and, and fear and everything that comes upon them. Again, we'll have more to say about this uh, this upcoming Sunday. So you'll notice here in, in, in Genesis that when their eyes are opened, they realize that they are naked and in despair and they run from God. Right? This, isn't, this isn't salvation. This is, this is damnation here. See, in the garden, the promise that their eyes would be opened was a lie. In terms of the way, the, way, the way that we see it here, their eyes were open to brokenness and sorrow, but Hagar's eyes are opened by God. And what it is that she's given is hope and redemption. So her eyes are open and there is water. I mean, can, can you imagine what, what that must have been like, right? Uh, just, just absolutely incredible. Uh, and so, uh, verse 19, we see that there's a well of water. Now, it's interesting. Um, we think we know exactly where this water is, this well is. Um, Danny, when y'all went to Israel, did you go to the Zamzam well? It's a Muslim site, so you may not have. It's farther south. It's the old Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if they would want, you know, a couple Americans coming to, to see it. It's a holy site. Um, it is traditional that faithful Muslims will visit this site of when God visited Ishmael and Hagar and provided water in the wilderness on their way to Mecca. And uh, so this is, this is a very important site. And this is supposedly the well. I, I, I've not done a big study of the archaeological evidence and the dating or anything like that. Next week, we'll look at Abraham's well. Um, maybe we have found it. And uh, some say we have, some say we haven't. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, nor did I stay at a Holiday Inn. But this is a significant uh, part of, of uh, Muslim faith. Remember, the Muslims believe in Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. Where they disagree is the Bible suggests that Isaac is the son of promise, and whereas the Muslims believe that Ishmael is the son of promise. And so what we have in the international scene is one guy is responsible for really what's dividing the Middle East. How about that for a legacy, right? Um, thousands of years, years later. And uh, so this is it. So if, if you ever go down there uh, and you're allowed to, uh, they've, they've got quite the shrine set up for that. Um, well, verse 20. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. It's interesting. She went as far as a bow shot um, and he grows up to become an expert on, on the bow. Uh, now, this, is, this was predicted back in chapter 16. Remember, he was described as a wild donkey of a man. Some of you may have raised a son like that. Um, I, uh, uh, my parents did. It was my brother who was here Sunday. He's still in town. Um, 
I am raising a cross between my brother and my father-in-law, and I don't know what I did to deserve it, but I repent in bitter tears and ashes. I watched my brother and, and son eat pizza at Lenny's uh, Tuesday, uh, Monday. We went to go see the new Ghostbusters movie. And my goodness, they, 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 are, they are too much alike. They won't eat the crust. You ever been to Lenny's, right? There is no crust. It's, it's excellent pizzas. My favorite pizza joint here, here, here in Frankfurt. There's no crust. So what are they skipping? Why? And they got the little pizza. Craig's a grown man. He could eat a, a bigger pizza than that. And in fact, you know how little my son eats? He ate more than my brother. Uh, and, and again, it's not like I ate one twice, twice theirs and I ate the entire thing and could have still eaten, right? I told you, exercising is not, my, is not my problem. Dieting is my problem, okay? I'm a Baptist minister. I like carbs. Um, so, but anyway, I don't know what that has to do with anything. But um, as a wild donkey of a man, he's a bowman. And the biblical record indicates the Ishmaelites uh, were, were known for this. So Isaiah 21, 17, the remainder of the archers of the mighty men and sons of Kedar. Kedar was the son of Ishmael. Um, and, and you see there uh, the connection to archers. They're known as, as bowmen. Um, and so he, he learns to, to use a bow, become an expert in it. Verse 21, he lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And that makes sense, right? She, she's an Egyptian woman. Uh, she uh, finds him a wife. Now, what, what, do, we, what do we do with, with this story? Well, if the first 14 verses were to have us looking forward to the Exodus, I think these verses have us looking back to the garden. Uh, throughout Genesis, we've talked about this before, and this will be important next week when we look at uh, the, the final passages of, of Genesis 21. Throughout Genesis, trees and plants foreshadow the presence, judgment, or the work of God. I mean, we, we've spent a whole week on this. I mean, it was like forever ago, but it happened one time. So take, for example, Genesis 1, the commandment to be fruitful, multiply. Well, that is the language of, of plants, right? Fruit, right? That, that they were to be fruitful, uh, which is to, to, to reproduce. Also, fruit, to be fruitful, implies wisdom, right? Um, and so, so that language is found throughout out the Bible, right? Uh, and so if you eat of this fruit, you get life. If you eat of this fruit, you get death, wisdom and foolishness, Okay. Um, and so we see trees all over Genesis and the Bible, but really all over Genesis. The two big ones early on is the, is the two in the garden, right? Uh, you remember Noah gets off the ark. You remember that the, uh, the, the flood is a retelling of the creation story, right? Remember the water goes all the way up. That's, that's you know, remember that the spirit of God hovered over the earth. It was a mess of water. And then as it recedes, there's light, Right, the the and then the ground comes out from below as the water recedes, the mountain tops, and eventually he sends out birds, all that sort of stuff. But well, you remember what Noah? He gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard. He plants a plant. Right? There's another tree there, if we can use that word tree. And what happens is his fall. He gets off the ark and he's told to be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. He has three sons, like Adam had three sons. But like Adam, he falls, and one of those sons becomes cursed. It's Ham. Well, really, it's his grandson because it's, it's an offspring issue. Right? And, and we, we talked about that there's issues of, of nakedness and shame and all that sort of stuff. And so the, the boys cover Noah much the way God had covered Adam and Eve. So, so all of that. And, and right there in the middle of it is, is, a, is a plant, a tree. 
Um, Genesis 12, again, we'll look at this next week. Uh, Genesis 13, rather. Uh, Abraham settles down, builds an altar next to the Oaks of Mamre. And that, that tree is really important. Um, in Genesis 21, 33, again, we'll look at this next week. Uh, Abraham plants a Tamarisk tree after he cuts a covenant with Abimelech. Abimelech remembers the guy that uh, he told his wife was his sister. And that didn't go over too well. Um, but you'll notice that he plants this tree and he calls upon the name of the Lord. That's a significant phrase. Again, we'll, we'll get to it next week. Um, here, however, Abraham or Hagar and Ishmael are in the region of Beersheba. And it is an anti-garden, isn't it? Instead of lush land, it's dry wilderness. Instead of having a, being a place of life, it's a place of death. It's the anti-garden of Eden. And it's interesting that Hagar leaves um, Ishmael under a bush. Now, you've overlooked this, I know, but when you see it, you're going to remember it. You remember the first time bushes are mentioned in the Bible? It's in Genesis 2, when there was no bush of the field yet. This is the anti-garden. There's... There's no bushes in the garden. There's bushes in the wilderness. And the story of Genesis so far has, has been, what does life look like east of the garden without the tree of life? Without real wisdom, without the presence of God. What, what, is, what is life? And what, you, what, what we find is constantly, it's a wilderness. And not just physically, but spiritually. Spiritually, we see it in places like Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah and now Beersheba. And so we see a bush, but not a tree. We don't see uh, wetlands. What we see is this wilderness and sand and dust. It's the anti-garden. And so, despite that, God shows up for Hagar and Ishmael, a man and a woman, just as he did to Adam and Eve, a man and a woman. Despite that it is the anti-garden, God responds very much the same way. He shows up. He enters into this garden amid the despair. Much like Adam and Eve were in hiding, here is Ishmael and Hagar in hiding from each other, separated. But there is God. There is God. For Adam and Eve, he provides for them uh, a sacrifice to cover their shame. Here, God offers water because they are thirsty. And in the middle of that, God creates a garden-like home. There is a well in the middle of the wilderness. And there comes life. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the same story told in, in reverse, basically. Same story. Now, this is somewhat picked up by, by Paul. So if you will, turn, turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. And this is, for the most part, the end of the Hagar-Ishmael story in the Bible at least in terms of, of direct narrative. So Paul turns to them, and he makes a gospel connection. Galatians 4. What did I say, Genesis? I'm sorry. The other end of the Bible, forgive me. Genesis 4 is Cain and Abel. Galatians 4. Galatians is a tough enough book to, to understand, but this is by far the hardest part in the book to, to understand. We'll do the best we can. 
Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Now, that is the thesis, right? It's going to answer that question. If, if, you're, if you're really under the law, do, do you really want to be under that law? Okay. Um, you remember in Galatians, he's dealing with legalism within the church. You have to meet all these requirements in order for Jesus to love you. Verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, and this is the problem. Now, when you read your Bible, do not read it allegorically as a, as a very clear general rule. I can give you some fun examples of people going crazy with that sort of thing. By the way, if you watch enough preachers on TV, you'll get plenty of bad allegories. Okay? Can I give you just two famous examples? Because I did one of them here. And, and it was hilarious to watch some of y'all get really excited and it was bad exegesis. The big one is David and Goliath, right? What does David and Goliath really mean? It's about slaying your giants. That's allegorical preaching. You're not in the story. Did you notice that? Right? If you're in the story, you're the cowering Israelites too afraid to slay the giant, right? right? The point of David is to get us to Christ. You ain't Jesus, right? Don't put yourself in that story. We do it all the time. So we can say, well, my giant is poverty. My giant is sickness. My giant is crazy teenage kids or my giant is whatever it might be. And so I'm going to get five smooth stones. Remember, you may, I don't even remember this is not from last year. And those five smooth stones are supposedly faith and hope and promise and whatever they are. And man, we display them. I don't know what we do that we only use one stone instead of all five. And which one stone do we use? I don't know. It's allegory. And right, we do that all the time. We do the same thing with um, Jesus uh, calming the storm. And so what you hear the TV preacher say, uh, what storm in your life does Jesus need to calm? The story ain't about you, right? I mean, you're not in the story unless you're the one in the boat scared to death that you're all going to die, right? At best, that's who you are, okay? So, so as a general rule, don't do any allegorical interpretation unless the Bible has you do it, okay? So here's Paul. Now, I think the reason he's doing this is because the Judaizers are prone to do this. I think Jude does something similar. It's why Jude quotes from non-canonical books. Anyways, so allegorical is what he's doing here. Um, uh, these women, verse 24, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O bear one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Is that clear to you? Good. We can just go home. All right. All right. I'm going to steal this from Chuck Swindoll because he's smarter than I are. So this is simplified. This is Paul's allegory. Start with Hagar. Uh, she's the slave woman. She represents the old covenant, the, 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 the legal covenant at Mount Sinai. Okay? She's allegorically being interpreted here. Okay? If you just read the Genesis story, you're not going to get this. But, but he's, he's using it as, as a way of illustrating. Her son Ishmael was born naturally. Right? That is in the narrative. Uh, that, that Sarah gave Hagar over to Abraham, they, they conceived, right? He represents Judaism, which is centered in Jerusalem, okay? So you have the law, and it comes naturally, which makes sense because legalism is natural religion. 
Have you noticing how uh, religious and legalistic wokeness is getting? Right? It's, it's where there is religion, you're going to get legalism. There's going to be a lot of rules that you have to follow if you want to stay inside the team. Okay? Uh, its representation is legalistic religion. Okay? So that's, that's what he's saying about Hagar. Sarah is the other covenant. She is the free woman. She represents new covenant given to us at Calvary. Now notice he, he's interpreting the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. Okay? His, his, the son, Isaac, um, Isaac uh, is a supernatural birth. Now what he's not saying is, is that Abraham and Sarah uh, were not intimate and conceived, but it is to say that regardless, the fact that she conceived is a miracle, right? It's a supernatural birth. Again, the story of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and Zacharias, it's, it's the same story. He represents all who are part of Christ's church through faith, centered in the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, and then uh, everything got knocked down for some reason when we switch over to, the, to this computer. Um, he represents authentic Christianity, right? That, that's the allegory he's given. So how does this work? Hagar represents legalistic religion, uh, because Ishmael's conception was by natural means. Sarah represents authentic faith because Isaac's conception was by su supernatural means. So here's the thing. Religion does not require faith. It only requires works. That's Hagar. The gospel requires faith and no works because it is a supernatural gift from God. That's what he's doing with this story. And he says that all of us are children of Hagar in the sense we were born by natural means and subject to fallen natures. We are lost, and as she is here, she is hopeless. But only those who run to Jesus are children of Sarah. And this is important for Paul because he wants them to see that what makes you a Christian isn't that you come into Judaism, but that you come to Christ. Jew and Gentile. So if you go back to this story, we see here, how does God deal with this child of Abraham who is not the son of promise? He treats him the way he treats everyone. Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, others. And, and so it, it becomes a picture of grace in this anti-garden. And that is why at the end of the day, verse 27 and 28 are, are important. Um, I'm sorry, verse 28, 29. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, persecuting him, was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. What does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see what he's saying here? We, by faith, are sons of Abraham through Isaac, sons of promise. And it's by faith, by faith. Well, we'll stop there. You're probably wore out. I know I am. Anything we missed, need to add? Danny, we doing all right? Uh, I, I want to say something. Yeah. What you said there, we are, we are sons of Abraham by faith, mm -hmm. not by blood. So therefore, we are not 